Well, if, since you cannot see PowerPoint, neither can you see your bulletins, I will give you a little bit of a summary of how a map, how we're going to go. There are four exhortations that I bring out from the passage that we have. Our passages from verse 3 down to verse 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. And the main point I want to walk, would like you to walk away with is that the man of God is called to uphold and protect the body of truth. And we're going to look at four exhortations or four ways that may help you, exhort you to do this specific task. Number one, it is for you to embrace the truth of the gospel. The entire truth, the body of truth that has been handed to us and we have believed in, it is surrounded or at its core we find the gospel itself. And we are first and foremost to embrace. We are, to, are called to flee other things and yet stick to, cling to the gospel itself. Number two, it is to practice godliness with contentment. To be content with all the things that God has given us. Number three is to flee from worldliness. And worldliness in this case is really shown through the love of money. It is a heart issue that we will talk about. And number four, it is to actively pursue faith and godliness in your calling. Actively pursue faith and godliness in your calling. So we'll take a look at the first one, which is embrace the truth of the gospel. Embrace the truth of the gospel. The epistle begins with Paul instructing Timothy why he has left him in Ephesus. It was after the first imprisonment that Paul, I even liked it already better without lights. <laughs> um, in the beginning, Paul has spent years, several years in the first imprisonment. And when he got out, he got out, he went from town to town and he went to preach the gospel and to visit churches that he has established. And then he came to Ephesus. When he was in Ephesus, he has met people the, who are, were in the opposition of the truth. They were in opposition of the gospel. And he said, Timothy, I specifically left you at this church so that you would tell them to stop teaching false doctrine. If you look with me, while you can, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, you can see in verse 3, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines and tell them not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. That was Timothy's number one instruction. This is what his goal was. And then when we come to our passage in chapter 3, we see that these people, they advocate a different doctrine. He refers to the same people who just speak nonsense. They come up with genealogies, myths, and they turn into speculations and all kinds of traditions and philosophies and whatever they were to bring, it contain no gospel and no truth of itself. And Timothy was called to stop them from speaking. At the same time, if you continue in chapter 1, in verse 5, you can see that people who were instructing the church, people who were teaching 
this nonsense and this empty myths and regulations and law and whatever they were bringing to the church, they did not produce any of the godliness that we will speak about, but what it brought in was sin. But here you see that in verse five, Paul says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul says, Timothy, look, this is the difference between their instructions and their nonsense that they teach the church and this is what you and I, we instruct. Our truth is not void. Our truth actually produces fruit of godliness. And yet, on the other hand, everything else produces sin. And you can look back in our passage in chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 3, where Paul says, these people, they do not agree with sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with doctrine conforming to godliness. So they do not believe in the truth of the gospel because the words pertaining to the Lord Jesus, it's not necessarily the words that Jesus Christ spoke at some point, but it is words about Jesus Christ, which is the truth of the gospel. They do not agree with it, and they reject that. And in turn, it produce, does not produce godliness. And look at verse 4. He continues to explain who these people are because they are puffed up. They're conceited. They have a very high view of themselves. They are very proud people. And they say they think that they know it all with all of the things that they offer. But in the reality, they do not understand anything, Paul says. They're moved by ill or morbid interests. They have these controversial questions that they like to discuss. They have these disputes about words and their doctrines, and their um, whatever they propose. And look where it leads. Look at where it leads in verse 4. It says, with the morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant frictions. This is the reality. When People are not affected by the gospel, by the truth of the gospel, by the love of God that has been shared with them, that has been shown to them. They only produce sin, envy, or jealousy, strife, fights, abusive speech. They slander one another. They have evil suspicions. They have constant friction among themselves. This is what it produces. Why again? Paul says, because they are depraved, they are of deprived mind, and they are deprived of the truth. They do not have the truth of the gospel moving them, but instead false doctrines and then bad motives. Look what Paul says. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They believe that if they speak and behave even in a certain way, then they're godly, and they use such pretended godliness to gain money. There is a financial incentive in this lifestyle, in this role. Now, I want to take a little pause, and I want to spend a couple minutes talking specifically about godliness, because godliness is a term that in our passage is mentioned four times. In fact, in the whole Bible, in the New Testament, excuse me, it is mentioned 50 to- 15 times. Nine of these times are mentioned in the first Timothy. And When we talk about godliness, you can say it as reverence, right? As honoring God, but it 
speaks specifically about how one, a state of being totally concentrated to God, to his worship and to fulfillment of his will. A lot of times when Paul mentions it, he mentions it as an outward appearance of worship and piety in honor of God. It a lot of times involves this devotion to God to accomplish his divine will. That is what godliness is. And when he says these people, the way they teach, their teaching does not produce godliness, but our godliness, our teaching does. In fact, when we look at that's why I referred back to chapter 1, verse 5, that he says the goal of our instruction is what? It is love. From a pure heart, good conscience, that is by faith. That was the goal of our instruction. It is what is able to produce. If, if I can remind you from 2 Timothy, where Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, why does he say that? Why is it that if you desire to live godly, you will be persecuted? Because again, godliness is your manifestation of what is inside. And if you want to live godly, if you want to obey what God has said, if you want to submit to his will, what will happen is that the evil people will not appreciate it. Evil people will view you and they somehow your actions or your words or your decisions, they will interfere with their natural desires. It will interfere with their pursuits and their way of life. And they will in turn persecute you. But that is something that us, those of us who have followed God and have embraced the gospel, as we focus on the gospel, we will look in a moment, we are in turn are able to produce godliness, not of ourselves, but as a fruit of what has taken place in our heart. Like I said, it is always in line with love. Godliness is always in line with love. Righteousness is always in line with love. And if there is no love, like you can see among these people who have strives and fights and quarrels and they have um, evil suspicions and frictions of every sort, there is no love. There is no gospel. If you remember from 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul provides a whole list of things speaking about the people that will come at the later times. If you remember, he says, for men will be, what? Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, right? They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But look what it says. It says, they're holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. They are able to pretend to be godly. They are able to put up some kind of a facade, some kind of a shape that they are godly. Perhaps they speak in a certain way. Perhaps they use certain terminology or they dress in a certain way. Or however they can, they put up this front of being godly people. Yet, because of what is inside of their heart, because they have never been affected by the truth of the gospel, they continue to be in sin and reality is they love themselves, they love pleasures, they have no self-control, they have the worst relationship problems, 
And therefore, by their actions, they deny the power of the gospel that can transform them and produce the true godliness. In a similar way, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we read in the same way, maybe not to the same extent, but these people, they were not affected by the gospel. Now, bringing it a little bit to us, and we say, well, if I want to be godly, if I want to be godly, what is it that I must do? What is it that I, am I just going to wake up tomorrow or maybe today on January 1st and I'm just going to be godly? You know, I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to sacrifice for him. I'm going to, how is it that it works? And I want to take you to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter lists all types of virtues, right? He says, now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, verse 6, and in your knowledge, self-control, then perseverance, then godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness, love. Look, there's a call for action to persevere in these things. Well, how? Am I just going to commit myself again to do this on my own? Look what it says. He says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says, for he who lacks these qualities, perhaps you see, you're there and you think, man, I, I, want to, I want to grow in those qualities. I want to be more loving. I want to be more patient. He is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Look, when you are not loving, when you are not presenting godliness, what is happening is that you shifted your focus from what has been done to you by the love of God. You are short-sighted, and you have forgotten that you have been purified, you have been cleansed, you have been freed from the bondage and the payment and the guilt, and therefore you are not able to persevere in godliness and love. And this is something, a bit of a side lesson for us, that we are to, we are to strive, which we will see in a moment, but yet we're grounded in the gospel. The gospel is the, what transforms us. The gospel is what ends up being the source of this goodness and kindness. It is also the method through which we're able to persevere in godliness. Now, carrying on with our passage, if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we don't know exactly what method these people were using to earn money, but this is clearly says that the godliness that they were thinking that they were doing It was earning them their money. They were using it as a mean of gain, means of gain. Perhaps they were teaching their nonsense, law, rules, giving counsel. They were charging perhaps money for it. We don't know. Or maybe they were using other means to appear pious, godly, and maybe it gave them certain financial advantage. We don't know exactly. But God says the motivation was there. They wanted to get rich. And the principle, like we said, Paul emphasizes is clear that without internal knowledge of the truth, without being impacted by the truth, they cannot produce godliness. Now, 
In the same way, there is an application for us. The same principle applies. There is enormous amount of information, enormous amount of counsel that we see and encounter every day. Look, there's a counsel, there's an advice for every topic in your life. There's an advice of how you are to be a better spouse or how to find a spouse. There's an advice for your parenting. There's an advice for how to run a business, how to be successful financially. You can read and you can study, you can watch YouTube videos, you can, you can listen to all kinds of stuff. It, there's so much that's just bombarding our lives from every side. And yet, if any of that is void of the gospel, is void, void of the truth that was given to us, it is useless. It does not produce godliness through everything that we're trying to pursue. It is very important. Let's take our live groups, for example, where we have several families or several individuals. We meet once in two weeks, once a week or so, and we share something together. We speak about our lives, our jobs, uh, our kids. Uh, maybe we have things in common, such as age or parents or whatever it is. We share things and we sort of get together closer to one another. But what is it at the kernel of that? If you take away the gospel, if you take away the truth out of that live group, that's not live group. That is not something that will actually help you and encourage you and produce godliness out of you, right? In you. It is just a social club. And if you just take out the truth out of that group of people, what's going to happen? You're going to have quarrels, fights. You're going to have selfish ambition, driving things. Oh, and she said this, and he said this. Well, I'm going to slander you like this. I'm going to gossip like this. That's what it's going to happen to. That's what happens in the world within these, within these social clubs, so to speak. The truth must be central for you and me in order for even for us to uphold it. We must embrace it first. For us to defend it, it must be ours, not only individually, but even corporately, in the small group, or even in our church. So that is our first lesson. We are to embrace the truth of the gospel in order to be those who uphold and protect the truth. Let's move on to number two, which is practice godliness with contentment. We are called to practice godliness with contentment. Take a look at verse, at the next verse, chapter 6, verse 5. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness actually is a means of great gain. Now, NASB and ASB Bible, it does not switch the definition or the term. It carries from verse 5 into verse 4 the means of gain. If you look at ESV, if you have ESV Bible, it actually says, but godliness actually is a great gain. I tend to stick, well, I stick with NASB, but I do prefer the way ESV puts it in this way, that your godliness is not something that which earns you something else. Godliness is already a great gain when, when it is accompanied by contentment when it is accompanied by contentment. To be content, what is it? It is to be satisfied. And contentment comes from a trust in a merciful and gracious God. It comes from an understanding that God is sufficient for me 
his promises are true despite my financial status or despite that I don't have something or I can't obtain something. He continues to be truthful and faithful to me. Godless, like someone says, is not about acquiring better and more material things like these people thought. It is instead an active life of faith, a living out of covenant faithfulness in relationship to God that finds sufficiency and contentment in Christ alone. Whether one's outward circumstances might be. Look, Paul was an amazing, amazing example for us. He says that I have learned, right, to be content. In Philippians chapter 4, it says, the guys, whatever the gift you gave me, I'm not speaking. I want to thank you, but I'm not speaking of one because I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in every and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Wow. I read that and I say, I wish I could learn to be content regardless of my circumstances. Here in the next verse, he says this. If we, verse 8, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But at the same time, in, to Philippians, he says, look, I didn't even have food. And I learned how to be content. I was hungry and I still was content with what God gives me. Because he absolutely trusts God. Notice that contentment doesn't come specifically from the amount of money you have or don't have. You can be discontent while not having any money. And you can be poor as one of the poorest people on earth. You can still be discontent. And yet you can be discontent having a lot of money. I know of individuals who have a ton of money. They make one to two million dollars a year. And they, in many ways, are discontent. Because it's not having to do with the money. It has to do with the heart attitude. And Paul says, look, godliness, godliness is a great thing when it is accompanied by contentment. What Paul does is to help us think and understand this context, he gives us, brings up into the reality of eternity. He says, look, you are here for a time. You came with nothing. You came naked and you had zero dollars. You, you had nothing. And guess what? You're going to leave in the same way. But there is something greater. Your life is just a short period of time. And you have eternity to come. And whatever you have here, your circumstances, they are not of that great importance. And therefore, your pursuit of riches, it is not necessary. In fact, it can be hurtful and you are to be content with what God gives you today. What is the opposite of contentment? Sometimes we wonder, am I content with what God gives me? Think about it. Are you dissatisfied? Are you constantly experiencing this insufficiency? You're grumbling. You're disappointed. You're agitated. Maybe you're in constant worry. You're discouraged. Or maybe you have this constant desire to get more. If you do, it comes from a lack of faith. It comes from 
belief that God is not enough for me, that he's not sufficient to fulfill all my needs. And sometimes our desires become our needs. It comes from a very wrong view of what is truly valuable and good. The danger is always in the heart. The heart desires and pursues riches, then the person is prone to certain temptations. Let's go on, and we'll take a look at verses 9 through 11. It says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice Paul again. He's not talking about possession of wealth. He's talking about the heart attitude and this desire to be rich. In fact, this word for desire is a strong desire, where we even translate it sometimes as passion or lust. It's when you want something so badly that you become not wanting anything else. Everything else becomes as less important and something that you do not wish to pursue as much. And says Paul says that, look, the desire, it plunges this person into special, unique temptation. He's not talking about that every Christian is going to have, does not have this temptation. But the person who wishes to be rich, he's falling into a unique temptation where he, it breeds other desires and it then it ultimately leads him to a snare or a trap of the devil. And then at the end of the day, it brings harmful and just poor personal destruction of the soul. Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. We understand that the love of money is not the only root of evil, but one of the roots, and it's also not the root of every single specific evil, every different category of sin has a root in the love of money. Brothers, sisters, friends, you may say, well, I want to know. I want to, do I have the love of money? How do I test if I am constantly swayed by this and I'm, my focus drifts from caring and upholding the truth of the gospel, right? The truth that was given to me. Is money the matter here? Do I have a problem with this? And I think it's good for us to take a look and see in verse 17 how Paul addresses the rich, how Paul instructs Timothy to address the rich. He says, Paul, instruct those who are rich in this present would not be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. This is where Tim read it earlier today. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And this is a good test for you and me. Are you conceited? Are you boastful? Many of us are rich. Are you boastful in what you have? Do you, have, do you place your hope in the things that you have? Or maybe you wish to gain. Do you understand that you are supplied richly and just giving thanks for, to God for what you have? Are you willing to do good? 
He says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works. Not to boast about your, what you have, but truly earn, to do good works and to be generous and ready to share. Are you ready to share? Are you storing up for yourself the treasure? And he's talking about taking hold of that which is life indeed. Do you realize that your possessions or lack of possessions means nothing pertaining to the life itself, the true life, the eternal life, your possessions truly do not mean anything. It has no value in and of itself. I want to read to you parts from early church father Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, a man who is, was an excellent preacher, but he brought up this very important understanding, and he said this, look, when you look at gold and silver, do you see them beautiful? And they were and are but dust and ashes. The beauty, he says, is but in opinion, in human prejudice, not in the nature of things. For that which possesses beauty from nature need not any to point it out. He brings up several examples. He says, look, you look at the coin, a gold coin, and you put so much value into it, and you think that this is worthy to pursue. This is something that is so good. This is so great. But end up having someone, a professional comes and he says, look, this is a fake. This is a coin that was painted with gold, but in reality, it is not worthy. And what happens? You say, well, I guess it's not worth it. And you change your mind and you change your focus upon something else. When you look at a piece of clothing made out of silk, well, what is this? Well, it's people who put a few strings together and they actually prepared some kind of piece of clothing. It is something, it is acceptable in a social norm and you think, okay, well, we all agree that this is valuable, right? Well, what if something changes and this is something else is valuable next day? He later on says there are things that are naturally valuable. There are things that are naturally worthy of pursuit. There are things, for example, when you look at the flower and you look at the beauty of the flower, there's nothing that is man-made. There's no prejudice behind it. It is God-made and it's, you see that it is beautiful and in its nature. In the same way, he would say, we need to recover from, he would call intoxication and let us Fix our view upon that which is truly beautiful, beautiful in its own nature, upon godliness, upon righteousness, which is produced by the truth that we carry. So as we evaluate our life, as we look at what we have, we are to see, are we distracted from the truth that we are to carry? Or are we truly focusing? Are we content with what we have? And we're moving away and fleeing. We're fleeing from the worldliness and this love of money and focusing on what we're called to do. This brings us to verse 11. Take a look and he says, straight commands. He says, he says but flee these things, you man of God. In Greek text, there's a very remarkable contrast. He refers to the other people as those, as he, as they. But now he says, but you, 
O man of God. But you, O man of God, flee from these things. Flee from all of these worldly things. In 1 Corinthians, he says, flee morality. Flee idolatry. In second letter to Timothy, he would say, flee from youthful lust. There are things we, friends, we just flee from. We're not to mingle with the things. And here, this love of money or this worldliness, we just simply flee in order to be effective in our upholding of the truth. That is number one. The other three terms, look at, look at this with me. He says, pursue, fight, and take hold of. Very, very active words causing us or leading us to action. Pursue, that is, you are to follow. You are to be on something's tail all the time. Righteousness, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Paul places these virtues, things that are truly valuable, things that are truly important to God, things that are just in God's scale, they're worthy of our attention. And I don't believe that there's any specific order in which Paul has placed this, but he says, look, we've looked at them before. Righteousness and godliness are two related terms that begins with internal view of things that are right and good in God's eyes. And those are to be then practiced and followed by us in our life. Faith that is just simple, profound trust in God. Trusting that he's good. Trusting that he is good for you in all of your circumstances. That his commands are good. That his trials are good. That his discipline of you are good. Love. Love being the whole goal of our instruction as we have seen. All of us have experienced love of God are able to love God and others. And in fact, all righteousness and godliness that we produce ought to be in love, in line with love. Perseverance, steadfastness, the ability to bear under difficult circumstances. We can only pursue and, pers- and persevere by daily trusting in God as we hope in the promise of his coming and the blessings we will enjoy throughout eternity with him. Then there's gentleness or meekness. It's ability to have self-control in own strength. It is a way that we are to deal with people who are failing or those who are in opposition. Gentleness. Then there's this call to fight the good fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Again, a very active term. A term that is used in athletics, right? We are to uphold and defend the truth. And that involves you brother and sister, to fight for the truth. When Satan attacks sound doctrine, he expects you to hold it and fight for it within and also speak up and also to fight for the truth. The history of Christian church points to these just repeated battles over heresies that the enemy repeated introduced into the new church. The battle always begins at the heart. Someone introduced a heresy, a little twisted truth, and then it continues to grow, and then it begins to spread like gangrene. But we must embrace and uphold the truth before we can defend it. Lastly, he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy already 
has the eternal life. He already outwardly expressed, likely during his baptism, through the public confession, the presence, in the presence of many witnesses, that he has placed his faith in Jesus Christ. But by faith, Paul calls him to grasp that gift. That is to renew his mind in accepting the reality of what he has, the eternal life, and implementing that in life, in daily life. As a summary, in conclusion, I want to just go over and remind you what Paul is calling. Timothy is called to embrace, to uphold, and to defend the truth. That is his job. That job, that responsibility falls on all of us to a certain degree. More so on pastors, more so on leaders of the small groups, but every single one of you is called to uphold and defend the truth. And for you to do that, you must first embrace the gospel. For you to do that, you must renew your mind daily in the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, nothing that you do, regardless of how godly you may want to try to be, this will not produce genuine, true godliness. It may look like it. It may take a form to a certain degree, but there is not going to be power of the godliness of the gospel within. That is the first one. The second one is for you to be content. As you practice godliness, you are to be content with what God has given to you. For you not to be distracted and constantly grumbling, but you are to put your trust in God and his faithfulness and his goodness to you and say, I am good. Regardless of what I have and what I don't have, I'm so thankful to the Lord that he is good and he has given me all things that I have to enjoy. Three is flee. Flee worldliness. Flee immorality. Flee this love of money that the world normally goes after. Flee just this desire to gain more and more because it will bring you to danger and it may bring some to destruction and walk, take you away from the faith that Paul wrote. Lastly, do not be passive, but instead of all that, you embrace and, and pursue what is good. Pursue godliness, pursue righteousness, love, faith, perseverance, gentleness. That is what you ought to do instead. This is what God calls you to do. You fight for the fight of the truth. You stand firm in what God has given and entrusted to you have full faith and confidence and hope in your eternal life and implement that in your everyday living. May God bless you in this for this next 2023 20, year. Please pray with me. Our Lord, we want to thank you again for your word. Your word is truly massive. There's so much in this that we see and we have a great calling. We have been entrusted with the truth and there are so many people around us, they try to twist it, they try to deny it, they fight it, Lord, and yet you have called us to truly embrace it, love it, believe it, and walk with it, produce godliness. Lord, and we pray that you would do that work by your spirit. 
We know that we are nothing. We cannot do anything without you, Lord. But we pray that you would just constantly renew our minds, set our faith and trust in you, dwell on your love for us, and be encouraged to walk and do the same as your son Jesus did while being here on earth. Bless us, we pray, even in this new year. In the name of Jesus, amen.